0: Enter your code. Retinal scan required. Agent confirmed. Good morning and welcome to Now Playing's Mission Impossible Retrospective series, Mr. Hunt. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch and review each movie in the Mission Impossible series. Your team for this mission will be Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob. This mission will be dangerous, filled with top-secret plot spoilers and mild language. As always, should any member of your team be caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This recording will self-destruct in 30 seconds.
1: Today we're discussing Mission Impossible, starring... Tom Cruise, John Voight, Emmanuel Baird, Jean Reno, Ving Rhames, directed by Brian De Palma. This is the podcasting flavor of the month, Arnie. Stewart in LA.
2: Or is this Stewart in LA? No, rip off my face. <laughs> this is Jacob. <laughs> and
1: here we are doing the impossible. Mission Impossible, the series that has escaped us once before. Now coming around again because the fifth film's coming out. We chatted about doing this with Ghost Protocol back in
3: 11. And didn't have time, I guess. Or interest. (laughs) I'll say it. I'm not the fan of this. I've never seen any of them. I don't know anything about Mission Impossible. The one thing I know about Mission Impossible is the theme song. And I did when I had an NES back in the late 80s. I had the Mission Impossible game which wasn't very good, and I didn't get very far.
2: (laughs) If you're the newbie, I guess I'm kind of familiar with this. I've seen the first one. I've seen Ghost Protocol. I've seen two or three, I think. I don't know. It was on in the background. But yeah, I've never watched the TV show, but I know about it because of pop culture. I know that theme song, and lighting the fuse, and the secret identities. It's it's something, I don't even think you have to watch the show, at least growing up in the 80s, when I did, to kind of know about it In just in the p- culture realm.
1: I am the fan of this series. I wanted to do it for Ghost Protocol. I watched a ton of the 60s series when I was a early teenager. During that period, I was a Trekkie and I'd watched all the Star Trek, and I'm like, oh, Leonard Nimoy was on this other show? <laughs> he was only on it for a couple of seasons, but I got kind of engrossed in it. It was on syndication all the time in the late 80s. And when I was re-watching those, I caught something that I wish I'd known when we reviewed the Oceans films. Oceans 11, the George Clooney one, ripped off the pilot episode of Mission Impossible to a T. The entire thing is about the IMF team, Breaking into a vault, including having a guy go in in a case and having to break out from the inside in order to not steal money, but steal nuclear warheads out of a hotel safe. It is so Ocean's Eleven. It's blatant. I also watched when it was broadcast first run a full season of that 88 series. It went on for two seasons. It changed nights. I lost interest, but I was there for both those series and I was in theaters. Opening weekend for this Mission Impossible. I had a group of friends that I just constantly went to movies with. It seemed like we were at a movie almost every weekend in 1996, just a huge summer for us to hit movies. It seemed like we saw so much during that period of 96, 97, everything from Independence Day to Spice World. This group and I would go to see movies. (laughs) And I was a fan of Tom Cruise. I would see. Every movie he did from Top Gun until Vanilla Sky. I didn't like all of his movies, but I saw every movie Tom Cruise was in during that period, and most of them theatrically. So yeah, I was excited by Mission Impossible when it came out. What I thought of it? Yeah, we'll talk about that.
2: Yeah, I I actually did see this one opening week, and this one kind of has a special memory for me, not because, well, we'll talk about it. But I've talked about before that I went and traveled abroad for a few years. This was the last film I saw in America before I got on a plane and left. So it's always stuck in my head because of that. Otherwise, I don't know if it would. That's the only reason it seems somewhat special. Is my last American film for a few years.
1: Yeah, Jacob, you mentioned Everyone Knows the Song. Absolutely. That song was something on the playground. I think part of the reason I might have gotten into Mission Impossible is because of Revenge of the Nerds.
2: I don't remember being in that.
1: When they're doing the panty raid and they're setting up the cameras. Uh,
2: okay, yes.
1: Mission Impossible theme is playing. So when you... Take a young, almost pubescent boy, his first experience with full frontal nudity, and the Mission Impossible theme, I think it creates a Freudian link that I love Mission Impossible.
2: (laughs) You associate it with college titties, of course.
1: But I think it also might be like the most popular TV theme of all time. It was released as a single with the series. Apparently, and I wish I could find this clip, if a listener can point me to it, I'd love to see it. The theme song was so popular that Dick Clark played it on American Bandstand. Did they dance to it? Yeah,
2: Did, were they rocking out?
1: They were unable to. This movie is in 5-4 time, which the composer says you need three legs to <laughs> dance to this. And so it was the one song in the history of American Bandstand that Dick Clark says he played and no one could dance to.
2: I do want to see that. Like standing around, hands in pockets. What's going on there?
1: My imagining is they're trying to dance, but they can't keep the time. They don't know what to do. <laughs> I would love to see it.
3: I would try the twist. I'll be honest. That would be the what I'd go for.
1: <laughs> and then for this movie, two guys from U2, not The Edge and not Bono, Larry and Adam, they did a remix of it. And it got released and was a top 10 hit.
2: I don't remember that. I know another band's going to do a cover of it that I'll remember. But no, the lesser members of U2, I do not remember that cover.
1: I can't think of any other TV theme. I mean, yeah, the theme to Friends had its moment.
3: But any theme to Enter the Top Charts... 30 years apart, is kind of impressive. Tom Cruise seemed to have a one-for-them, one-for-me kind of philosophy. And I think I saw every other film he was making. (laughs) The one for them? No, the one for them is this movie. I mean, I feel like he goes to the Mission Impossible well, whenever his career could use a little resuscitation. You know, after he does something more dark and challenging. You know, he'll do Mission Impossible 2 after Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia... He did this one after or around the same time as Jerry Maguire in Interview with a Vampire. You know, he takes chances and then he plays it safe. When he plays it safe, when he's trying to be Top Gun, I don't care about him at all.
1: But keep in mind, and I didn't realize this till I watched a Tom Cruise documentary, Mission Impossible is really his first action film. He'd had action scenes in drama films before, like Days of Thunder, and of course Top Gun. People can think of that as an action film because there's a few aeronautics, but that's nothing if not a drama and a love story. This was really his first time going balls to the wall action hero after turning down this type of role for over a decade.
3: Yeah, I mean, he had action cred. I mean, he ran a lot in the firm. I I feel like (laughs) he definitely exercised, and he was a physical actor. I think he is a, a movie star, and I think When you're a movie star, you tend to play these kind of broad, big, superhero kind of characters. But yeah, I guess you're right. This is the first time where you would just call this an action movie, where everything is about acceleration and speed.
1: And he produced this as well. He had started a production company. I think he was looking for something really bankable as his first produced feature film. And as a producer, he was paid and decided that he'd waive his own actor salary in exchange for a percentage on the back end. So, he had a vested interest in getting this thing done right and it was done under budget and earlier than expected. But it didn't have exactly a easy path to the screen. First of all, I'd like to point out this is not a Mission Impossible reboot and it's something that I didn't really put together until prepping for this review. This is a continuation of the Mission Impossible continuity that started back in the 60s. It is never rebooted. The John Voight character of Jim Phelps was the star of both the 60s and the 80s series. It was a character played by Peter Graves, and Graves was the first choice to appear in this movie. Why didn't he? All the original actors hated this script. Hated this script. First of all, the script wasn't very good. The first script that they were shopping around was written by some names that might sound a little familiar, Willard Hayek and Gloria Katz.
3: (laughs) Howard the Duck and Temple of Doom, sure.
1: (laughs) But in addition, they felt this movie series is a betrayal of everything they'd done over the span of 20 plus years, because we've given the spoiler alert, as we'll talk about, Phelps is not a good guy in this, and... That pissed off not only many of the actors who went on the record talking about it. Martin Landau was pissed, and Peter Graves was very pissed. But also, the older fans of the series felt like focusing on one person more than an entire ensemble team was a betrayal. This is to Mission Impossible what Star Trek 2009 is to Star Trek. They're not erasing what happened before. They're just shaking it up and turning it into something else.
2: I do remember my dad having watched the original Mission Impossible. Like, he came out of the theater. He's like, I can't believe they made Jim Phelps the bad guy. That meant nothing to me, though. But yeah, I do remember... The generation before me kind of like shaking their head at that.
3: And you bring up an interesting point that I had. My curiosity is Tom Cruise is not a team player. Why would you put him in an ensemble when he so clearly needs to be the most important one? It seems like he wanted to be James Bond. James Bond was back in the pop culture. Goldeneye had come out. They were relaunching spy franchises. It wouldn't be long before we'd have The Saint. And the Avengers, which the m one, not the superhero one. <laughs> yeah, that's awful. But you make him the solo. You make him Jason Bourne. You make him the standalone hero. The fact that Mission Impossible is a team, and Tom Cruise is going to just be one of many, that's a strange choice indeed.
1: I agree, and it is funny how it's come full circle, because I looked it up. Dr. No came out in 62. Mission Impossible, I think, was 66. And even though none of the press at the time were now said it outright i can't see how that series was anything but a james bond on television and one of the reasons it sold so well is it was supposed to intentionally have a rotating cast it was supposed to be different people a different team every episode it didn't work out that way fan favorites became the team for later seasons but it started off as instead of one james bond we'll have a team And now it's gone the other way, and it's just a blatant James Bond ripoff by the time Tom Cruise is taking over.
3: Yeah, that was what I was curious about, was coming into this movie fresh, was how would he do with his team? I knew one big spoiler. I knew that Emilio was his friend and that he got him a part in here, but I knew that Emilio wasn't going to hang around long. But I knew that there were going to be characters that would, and so how would they play? Would they play to him, or would he be an equal?
1: Yeah, they play to him, by far. I mean, in this one, his first team gets wiped out, and his second team, 50% are bad guys.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, my question gets decisively answered. But coming into this, I had a lot of curiosity. It was where my curiosity lied. My other lied with Brian De Palma, a director who I have uh, mixed feelings about. I respect him on some level. I think he's talented with the camera. I think he can overdo it with the camera. And I think he can sometimes fall in love with old movies so much that he ends up making mimicry rather than homage, but, you know, he had a long career. We talked about him when he made Carrie, of adapting Hitchcock kind of thrillers and playing off Hitchcock notions of sex and voyeurism, and then his career kind of shifted. You know, after Scarface, Untouchables, he did start to move in a more action-oriented Direction and he's a curious choice for Mission Impossible, and not an obvious one. But I'm looking at the movie to see what Brian De Palma is going to bring to this franchise.
1: I got to credit Cruise for something. This is the only movie he's really done sequels to, and he keeps coming back. But I think he's making it interesting for himself by picking directors with whom he wants to work. I mean, we're going to be talking some pretty big directorial names in this. J.J. Abrams, John Woo, Brian De Palma. He keeps it mixed up, but... You're going to diss Brad Bird? (laughs) I am going to diss Brad Bird. I've dissed him so much already. (laughs) And Tomorrowland does not help that case.
2: You just can't get over The Incredibles.
1: But I was learning a lot about the the behind-the-scenes of filmmaking by this point. I'd expanded beyond just reading Entertainment Weekly. I was reading a lot of making of. It helped that the internet was starting to blow up. In 96, I was working at an internet company, and I was paid to basically surf the web for eight hours a day. And this was the first film I'd heard of going into production without a completed script. And when they started the script, they started by throwing out everything High Duck did and just saying, here are the action set pieces we demand. There's going to be a high-speed train. There's going to be dangling from wires.
3: There's going to be all of this stuff. Now, put together a script that makes sense. Now, this is one thing I did know, that this movie had a huge reputation of being popular, of people liking it, but also befuddling seemingly everybody. I remember so many people coming out of this movie trying to talk to me about it, me not having seen it, not really even having interest blowing them off, but them trying to figure out what the plot was because they could not put it together. And you have some really good names on the script here, and those are just the ones that get credit. But David Cope wrote Jurassic Park, Robert Town wrote Chinatown, Steve Zalian was Schindler's List. I mean, these are all award-winning writers here. Maybe they all had great versions of their own script, but combined, collectively, as you said, Arnie, Slice and Dice... Maybe it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. I guess we'll have to get in the plot to know for sure.
1: Indeed. This film was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Film, grossing over $100 million.
3: (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Didn't win, though. Yeah. What did? The winner was Twister. Oh, okay (laughs) all right arnie then you get the impossible tell us what the plot is we'll get into the movie in mission impossible
1: tom cruise plays imf agent ethan hunt the protege of classic imf mission leader jim phelps here played not by peter graves but instead john voight phelps has been given a mission to recover a list of undercover spies called the non-official cover list or knock list for short to assist phelps Phelps builds a team including Ethan, hacker Jack Harmon played by Emilio Estevez, seductress Sarah Davies played by Kristen Scott Thomas, undercover agent Hannah, and getaway driver Claire Phelps, Jim's wife played by Emmanuel Beard. The mission seems simple enough, but soon things go awry. All of Ethan's team is killed on the mission. More, the knock list was a fake set up by IMF director Eugene Kittridge to see who on Phelps' team was a mole. As Ethan is the only survivor, he is believed to be a traitor who killed his team and stole the list. So to prove his innocence, Ethan does steal the list! <laughs> <laughs> he contacts an arms dealer named Max, played by Vanessa Redgrave, and Max was to be the buyer of the stolen knock list. But when Ethan points out that that one's a fake it offers her the real thing in exchange for $10 million and the identity of the person who gave Max the fake list... Max agrees, and so Ethan assembles a new team. The first member of the team is Claire, who somehow survived her car exploding. Ethan is suspicious of her motivations, thinking she may be the mole, but his... attraction to the widow, I think, convinces him to use her on the team. We will certainly talk about that. Also recruited are two other disavowed agents, Computer hacker Luther, played by Ving Rames, and all-around tough guy, pilot Franz Krieger, played by Jean Renault. I have to admit, it wasn't Tom Cruise alone that got me into theaters opening weekend. You put Ving Rames and Jean Renault, two people I worshipped in 96? Oh yeah. So together, the team break into the CIA headquarters in Langley and, through a bit of dangling wire work, steal the real knock list. They then go to London to meet Max when Ethan is met by Jim Phelps. The senior agent hadn't died, but was severely wounded. He asks Hunt to keep his survival a secret, lest the mole find out. But Ethan sees a Bible, and that helps him put it all together. Huh? (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about that. I want to. Phelps was the traitor, and with the help of his wife Claire, and by great coincidence, also Franz Krieger, Phelps had planned to sell the list for $6 and retire. But Ethan needs proof, especially of Claire's involvement so he plans to meet Max aboard a train and deliver the list. He does, but then goes undercover, wearing a mask to look like Phelps, and Claire does reveal she was in on the plot from the beginning. Then the real Phelps shows himself, shoots his wife, and tries to abscond with Max's $10 climbing on the roof of a speeding train to board a waiting helicopter piloted by Franz. Ethan ties the helicopter to a train. It crashes, killing both the traitors. IMF agents, now knowing Ethan was right in his actions, Retrieve the real knock list from Max and offer to make her a deal in exchange for information. And Ethan flies home when he's delivered a new mission from IMF as credits roll.
2: Can we go back to Mad Max Fury Road's plot?
1: (laughs) (laughs) This one had a lot of twists and turns and with people wearing masks. And I didn't even get into a whole lot of the details. I tried to shave that down as much as I could. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I do feel like the movie is complicated. Maybe not as complicated as I've been promised, but there are things that are muddy to me. And I think intentionally, there are ellipses. There are things that aren't shown. I think it is a choice of Brian De Palma to skip over things and to have you asking questions. I see his touch evident throughout the movie, right from the first shot really, where you know he likes homages, he likes to do callbacks. It's a callback to the TV show. It started as a black and white TV on a 12 inch set, and that's what we get. Uh, it's a man staring at a set watching a spy ring go down.
1: And that man is Emilio! Emilio Estevez! I did not remember him being in this! Neither did I! <laughs>
3: yeah. It was one of the few things I knew that he was going to die in the beginning and that he got the job because he and Cruz go all the way back to Outsiders.
1: Yeah, Cruz also did a cameo for him in Young Guns and, but Emilio's career was kind of in the shitter at this point. I think this was, aside from Mighty Ducks films, His best work in the 90s?
2: Was he on two and three yet?
1: (laughs) That was
3: my
2: question is, which duck
3: was he at? I think by the third duck, he was dead in the water.
1: (laughs) He didn't even return for the third duck. He cameoed in the third duck.
3: Oh, yeah, there was some kind of DUI incident, I remember, yes. (laughs) Even Disney didn't want him. This was
1: between D2 and D3, but around this time, I mean... It all went to shit with Jack, right? It did. And that was way back in 92. We're here in 96. Actually, I
3: kind of always hold men at work against it.
2: <laughs> oh, man, I forgot about that one.
3: That's a guilty pleasure of mine. Ugh. But yes, it's fun to see someone we recognize. Everyone else in the cast was happening at the time, but in European cinema, in smaller things. They don't want to fill this cast with people that are of equal star wattage to Tom Cruise. They could have done that. I mean, it would maybe be expensive, but they could have gotten Julia Roberts, right? They could have gotten Arnold Schwarzenegger. They could have gotten the heavyweights of the 90s. They could have made it an equally balanced team if they wanted to. I think that
1: they should have, for this first team who's only in it for five minutes, it would be a great chance to kind of make an Ocean's Eleven-like ensemble until everyone's dead and then that would explain why Tom Cruise is now the big star. I would have loved that. And with Emilio there, they don't even have to be big stars. By this point Emilio Star was certainly shooting, but if they'd just gotten names in these parts. You don't need Julia Roberts, you could have gotten Sandra Bullock who back then was just out of speed.
3: Yeah, Kristen Scott Thomas was kind of happening. She was in four weddings and a funeral and She would be an English patient that same year. No one had seen it yet, but she was about to become something close to a star. But yeah, some of these other ones, Hannah, I can't even pronounce her name. (laughs) She was in an Oscar winner called Burnt by the Sun. I mean, like I said, they had indie cred. And and later, yeah, we'll get somebody from Pulp Fiction. We'll get them from The Professional. But they're supporting characters, and they just don't have the established brand That Cruz comes with. So it feels imbalanced. It feels like he should be leading the team, not Phelps. And I kind of get the impression he is leading
1: the team to a degree. I mean, he's the one who Phelps contacts first. And Phelps seems like he's too old by this point to be actively in the missions. He's going to sit back home and be, you know, control on the headsets. But Ethan's the field leader. I take it like Phelps is the Picard to ethan's Riker.
2: yeah we find out phelps at one point he's hanging out at the drake hotel in chicago that's going to be an important clue but yeah he's the high up ceo and cruz is the one ethan hunt's the one really doing all the work getting the team together putting the plan together even when he can't be the first in charge they're still going to make him because it's tom cruise
3: yeah and so much about this borrows from earlier cruise work so he's always bumping up against father figures right top gun or up against Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men, Cocktail, even Brian Brown. He's always got this person that starts out as a mentor, but ends up being sort of the enemy, and he's got to test his will and prove himself. I got to say, I guessed early. John Voight was going to be a negative influence on Tom Cruise because they set him up so early as being a mentor, and because he's not here in this opening Kiev sting which has nothing to do with the rest of the plot they get some information from a guy drug him and ship him off and box up the whole set but the point is that because phelps isn't there he's off in chicago they make such a point of underlining that i sense that that will be pivotal and that he's off doing something nefarious
1: i agree i didn't even know who john voight really was when i saw this movie I was watching a lot of behind the scenes stuff and everybody's making a big deal. Oh, John Voight. And this is when I learned he was Angelina Jolie's father. So that's what I knew him as. But. The fact that they made such a big deal out of him, and then he was gone so early, I'm like, yeah, he's the bad guy. And they said in the making of, oh, we hired John Voight, so nobody will suspect. But I was thinking along the lines of what you just said, Stuart. It's John Voight, so everyone's going to suspect.
3: Yeah, I wasn't fooled by what they take a long time to reveal. Phelps is doing his team wrong. And I want to try to understand what we can about why that is. Both he and maybe his wife. The question mark hangs over his wife, who is also a part of the team. Claire does some transportation stuff. She's sort of there to whisk them away after everyone else is doing the hard work. But we don't quite know about her. But he knows that he is setting up all of his team to be killed here in Prague as they try to nab Alexander Galitzin and the knock list.
1: Yeah, I think he even kills Emilio. He's sitting at a computer. Emilio's supposed to be the hacker, but somewhere, in a hotel room, a van, or something, I mean, he's nearby, but he's in a room. Phelps is also on a computer, and when Emilio can't open some doors, Phelps does. So you see that Phelps has more control than Emilio, Emilio's killed when some computer grabs an elevator and shoves him into some spikes. A death that, A, I wonder why he doesn't duck, but B,
2: ouch. Do elevators shoot spikes out to stop themselves? I, I'm not familiar with elevator technology. It, <laughs> it, it's a gruesome death. I, it just seems odd.
3: I think Phelps looks guilty here, too, because he's the one that tells him, cut the wire. As soon as he does, he seems to accelerate. It seems to send him even faster in there. To me, I felt like I knew the big surprise I felt like it was telegraphed. So what I'm wondering is, why? Why is he doing this? Particularly, it, I didn't realize that he was a continuation of Peter Graves' interpretation of the character. Why, after all of these years, does he want to kill off his team? He gives
1: a reason later on. He claims that he's spent his life being anonymous and working for the other people and not getting anything himself. He makes only 60000 a year. And keep in mind, he's been in service for 30 years, so (laughs) that's
2: low. Yeah, that's bum rap, man. Even in $96, that's not great.
3: Of course, he says that when he's talking about someone that he's trying to pin the blame on, so I didn't know how much of that story was his own. Or was it him trying to, you know, smear Kittredge?
1: I took it as his. And he also says he's in a shitty marriage. And I'm like, you're married to a woman like 40 years younger than yes. you who's really hot. And she's in on a
3: crime with you. Where exactly is the shit in that marriage? Again, I wasn't sure he was talking about himself, but you're right. It seems to apply, particularly when we know how that marriage ends up in the climax of this movie. (laughs) But okay, so he's just disgruntled. I can imagine why Peter Graves and Leonard Nimoy hated that. That is a really disrespectful way to begin a major theatrical reboot of a series where these people were altruistic, always doing the right thing.
2: But I gotta say, I mean, again, this is a Tom Cruise movie. Sure. My parents, people that age, they might go because Mission Impossible, they would watch that on TV. I watched this because it was an action film with Tom Cruise. I'm not tied up with the continuity. I, I know the theme song. I know Lighting the Fuse. I know the messages that are going to blow up in five seconds. I'm not familiar with these characters. It, that doesn't matter to me. And I wonder how many younger people that would have seen this, that really mattered to.
3: Yeah, I agree. It doesn't really matter. It's like the Boomer version of the Transformers animated movie. It's like, Okay, they killed all of the uh, robots that you loved and all and are giving us all new ones (laughs) to care about. But if this is the first time you're watching, okay, I want to know about the new ones. Yeah, Tom Cruise is the star. Who cares about the old dude?
1: I also don't know that this idea of a knock list is completely communicated, especially here. This is the MacGuffin for the whole movie is the knock list. From the first scene to the last scene, everybody's after the knock list. It's a cool name. I, at that year, actually started a file on my own computer called the Knocklist, which is the backup <laughs> of every photo application, every piece of digital media I have, and just today, I was organizing what I call Knock 2015. So for 20 years, I've lived with this movie daily.
2: I have always remembered that name, too. There's just something about the Knock list yeah, I've always remembered.
3: It was actually a point of confusion for a couple of minutes. I thought they were talking about Knockwurst. I mean, they're in Eastern <laughs> Europe. I'm like, sausage? I, what? But I figured it out. I figured it out. They eventually make it very clear that there are two parts of a list that are going to expose all of these agents, presumably themselves. Presumably, even Phelps, right, will be outed. He's outing himself, so he knows he's leaving the life. He's not just going to profit from these people's death by selling the list, it means he's ending this life as well.
2: No, this knock list they're going after at the beginning, yes, there's two halves. One with the secret agent, their code names, and then one with the actual names. But that is only the like European IMF agents. That is not everyone. Later on, when Tom Cruise goes to the CIA, he gets the knock list for everyone. So I don't think Phelps would be on this list At the beginning. Ah,
3: okay. Does he know that this is a setup? Because we're going to find out that the person that's selling the knock list, there's a guy named, is this Job? No, Phelps is Job. Yeah, I know he is. But okay, so Alexander is just Alexander. Yes. Yes. And Alexander is going to sell this list to Max, who we're going to find out is somebody that tempts spies. But in fact, Alexander is... Not going to do that. This is an actor playing a part. This is just to test the weakest link of Tom Cruise's team.
1: I don't think Alexander had any relationship with Max. Phelps had the relationship with Max.
3: Okay, that is a little confusing because, yeah, what you're saying is what started as a fictional selling of the list becomes a literal selling of a list. And that there's no connection between the two.
1: Well, what Phelps doesn't know is that it's a fictional list. And so what this is, I think Alexander thinks he has the real knock list. And he's looking at how to profit with it. And Phelps is going to steal it. What Phelps doesn't know is that their boss, Kittredge, has realized that shit's been going wrong for Phelps' team for several years. They think there's a traitor among them. So they let a fake list get out and sent a second team of IMF agents. IMF, by the way, stands for Impossible Mission Forcing. Love that. And those are there to catch the mole in the action. So, yes.
2: Yeah, those are the couples acting drunk and making out that we see Ethan kind of eye and notice, and he'll talk about them later.
3: And Phelps must know that they're watching because he's going to fake his own death here. So he must know that he is under observation. He's setting up Tom Cruise to take the
2: fall. Well, I think that's also how you get away with $6 million, is you fake your death and disappear. Yeah, there are things that are muddled here, like was Alexander hired by IMF to draw out the mole? Was he just a random thief? There are issues here that I will admit. I don't think this film's as confusing as its reputation is, but it's got story problems. I'll put it that way.
3: Yeah, there's none worse than many of the things that we review, but there were just times where I was like, I'm not quite sure, but I, I get the gist. I know what they're going for here. I just want to take this moment to try and understand Phelps as much as we can, because he's really the big bad. We won't be told that until the last seconds of the movie, even though we kind of figured it out, or at least I did. But I don't know that we ever really get a total why. I certainly don't know why his wife is in it and then not in it. I mean, she's the question mark. Claire is the one that is waiting in the car when the sting in Prague goes down. Claire is waiting to transport Alex away. She's in a car. It explodes, but she isn't inside. And when Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt finds her again, he's going to have to wonder whether... Did she get out of there innocently, or is she the mole? Is she the one that Kittredge is really looking for?
1: Well, in addition to having a script written during filming, there was a lot cut out of this movie, including a scene before this whole opening mission that establishes Somehow a love triangle between Claire, Ethan, and Jim.
2: Huh. Yeah. When Claire shows up, there's definitely this tension you feel. Like you feel
1: like why would she be with John Voight? Yeah. That's what I thought you were getting at.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm what I am wondering that I'm also wondering. Oh, your husband just died. Let's go after Ethan now. Like you're moving on really quick.
1: I could get why Ethan's into her. But it does seem pretty quick, and the way this movie's final cut works, and there were no deleted scenes on the Blu-ray... I don't really get that relationship. It's all a weird relationship. When she shows up again alive, Ethan is nothing but suspicious.
2: Yeah, was there... I'm trying to think now as we're talking through this plot, because I think this is where it's most muddled. There was never an attempt on Ethan's life like all the other agents.
3: Yeah, let's go down because I don't even know how Hannah died. I rewound it twice to find out how (laughs) Hannah died, by the way. (laughs) I really don't know. I know that Sarah got stabbed when she's standing next to Alex. She thinks he has the knock list. She's doing her job by making sure she sees who he gives it to and who he gives it to stabs them both and kills them. Who just so happens to be Krieger. We'll find out later. Yeah, we don't know who Krieger is yet.
2: Yeah, we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah,
3: it's already complicated. I'm just trying to figure out how the team died. Emilio was, yeah, shafted in the elevator. (laughs) They had Hannah there. Basically, she was the one to like, was going to carry the guy from the elevator to the car The car explodes, but the woman that was supposedly inside of that was Phelps' wife Claire, not her.
2: But no, it was Hannah in the car.
3: It was? It was, and when this is made explicitly
1: clear is later in the movie. When Phelps shows back up and Ethan is putting it all together, he replays what really happened in his mind. And that's when you see explicitly that Hannah and Claire were theoretically in the car, but in fact... Hannah got into the car, Claire got out and blew it up.
3: Yeah, they kind of have a similar look, so it's not really... I mean, Claire and Hannah, it was hard to tell them apart anyway, and I never really knew what one's role was from the other.
2: Wear sunglasses, and yeah, I don't know. (laughs) In the
1: old series, I was trying to map the roles, because there was always the team leader, who I saw as Ethan. There was always a tech guy who's... Art Emilio. There was always a seductress or an actress, a very pretty woman, a model, and I'm like, well, is that hannah is that claire
3: is that sarah yeah i thought it was sarah because she's the one you know that's actually doing the acting with ethan it, it's worth pointing out that they take the first of many opportunities to doll up tom cruise in uh, some rob botten latex face makeup so he looks like a democratic senator from virginia this is straight
1: back from the original series as well a big part of that original series were masks. And Martin Landau was a master actor, but it was done much more realistically. He'd have to watch videos, rehearse, and then put on a bunch of latex. And sometimes the real person would also be Martin Landau in makeup. And sometimes there'd be an actor who would would play, you know, the masked role. And so this is straight out of that old series as is. When Phelps, of course, gets his mission briefing.
3: Yeah, so does that guy work with the seductress then on the stings? Because if that's the case, I think Sarah is supposed to be that seductress. She's there in the party. They're working together to get the knock list.
1: Yeah, the other one could just be, you know, sometimes they had distractions and other women brought along. And they just had other undercover operatives to do that. I think that might have been Hannah's role. While Sarah was the seductress. And Claire, I think she was just the driver.
3: Okay.
2: Yeah. This is why I asked. So there wasn't an attempt on Ethan's life. We see at one point he's looking at what his eye watch or whatever they had back then. And he sees Phelps' bloody hands and sees him fall off the bridge. Phelps tells Ethan to get out of there. But then when Claire shows up at the safe house at 0400, like they were supposed to do if the mission failed, she seems surprised to find Ethan there.
1: But she's not. I
3: think she's just acting.
2: Okay. Perhaps.
3: I think that they have intentionally left Ethan alive. I think that the Phelps couple will find out she's in it as much as her husband. That's the one that I don't know for the, for much of the movie that they have decided in order to get out of this. They're going to frame Ethan so that everyone's chasing Ethan while they sell the real knock list to Max, even though they don't have it, but they think they do. Yes,
1: that is, I think, their plan as well. And I can't tell because Phelps had worked with Ethan for a long time. I got that Phelps was his mentor. And so for Phelps to set up Ethan to take... Such a fall. Seems, I mean, he's obviously a villain, but that's also a dick move. You can't, you don't have to be a dick if you're the bad guy. So I couldn't tell if they intended to kill Ethan and failed, or if they were setting him up to take the fall, or if they just didn't care and thought maybe he gets away, maybe he doesn't, and because Phelps had mentored him might allow him to live.
2: Or if they would have left that love triangle story in there, made that more explicit, make it a revenge thing as well. That's his motivation for framing Ethan as opposed to Emilio.
3: Yeah, but here's the thing. When Tom Cruise makes his big Hollywood movies, when he's doing one for the big audiences and not one for Kubrick or vampires or whatever, he is morally unassailable. He will never do anything wrong here. And it really, this was the first problem I had with this movie. I felt like this opening was fun. I didn't totally understand all of it, but it was fun to watch the devices and the team come together and fall apart. But wouldn't it be more interesting when he's washing the blood off of his hands here at the safe house if he had actually done something to get them killed? They tease that idea that, Oh, it's because he insisted on chasing Alex with that knock list when he was told to stand down that that's why everyone is dead. What if that were actually true? Wouldn't that make him a little more interesting as a character?
2: It's not that kind of movie. (laughs)
3: Yeah,
1: not only is it Tom Cruise being unassailable. He's the hero of a summer blockbuster action film. So you just don't do that.
3: Uh, you do it now. I feel like you could see that in a even a Bond movie.
2: If we ever do the Bourne films, I think we'll see that.
3: Daniel Craig or yeah, I, they would do it. Some series would take on moral complexity. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. There are spy genres where it is difficult to see heroes from villains, but yes. Do any make this much money? Uh, okay, you make a point. We want to see a clear-cut hero, and Tom Cruise was the biggest one of his era. So, yes, that's the way they play it. I just want to say it's part of the reason why I don't find him that interesting as an actor. It's just kind of boring to see someone that can never fail. It just leads him to be so cocky. I mean... Even in in this early scene, he has this really smug moment where he's cackling about how bad the coffee is. And just, I don't know, there's something about him that can sometimes just, it unnerves me. He's just too toothy. (laughs) Yeah,
2: look, literally, yeah. Look, not a fan of Tom Cruise, but I think he's the right fit for this film. You know, we're going to find out Kittredge happens to be in Prague. And he's calling him in. He's like, we're going to get you out of here. And they have that confrontation in the bar.
3: And can I say, I I just want to say, it's not a bar. It's like an all night. It's like a <laughs> Denny's.
2: Yeah. <laughs> with a huge fish tank. But in
3: Europe, I just want to say, even in Europe, they outclass us with uh, their all-night diners. Because, like, it's this aquarium restaurant that's, like, beautiful. And I'm like, oh, man, I would love for that to be our late-night diners here <laughs> in America. But we have too many guns, right? Too many holdups Because one bullet <laughs> and the whole thing is a flood of water.
2: That fish tank wouldn't
1: last. That was awesome, though. That flood of water shown in slow-mo was just incredible. This avalanche of water crashing down behind Cruz as he's running away from it. And they proudly proclaimed Tom Cruise did all his own stunt work in this. The wire drops, the running from water. This is before they were commonly doing face replacement on stunt doubles. This is Cruz and if he'd missed a beat there was a good chance of him drowning.
2: And I like his cockiness here. Yeah, I like this actor that plays Kit Ridge. There's just something so square about him and and just so governmental about him. I love this face off. You know, you've never seen me very upset. I I don't know if he's about to Hulk out, but (laughs) I want if you're going to be a spy. Yeah, be smart. Be able to recognize, oh, that's the couple that was acting drunk. That's the couple that was making out. Oh, this is a second team here. They think I'm the bad guy. I I don't have a problem with, again, this kind of film. This is a popcorn film. I want the hero to be smart. I don't want to see a dummy kind of just goof through the film and kind of figure things out. I like that this is a hero that has a brain that actually acts like a spy. You could see why he is in the IMF.
3: And the best of his kind. I mean, why he's number two to Phelps. Yeah, Tom Cruise is always the best. I think that's what irritates me is that he just never has any flaws or the flaws he has are solved by the end of the movie, usually by a woman or being a Top Gun or what have you. He works it out with his father figure. Now, during this exchange at the Aquarium Diner, another problem surfaces. (laughs) Something I really do hope, Arnie, that you can explain to me, if there is an explanation. I
1: probably can't. I mean, I've watched this film numerous times since 96, but I'll be the first to admit, this
3: thing has more holes than Swiss cheese. Okay, because Kittredge is the one to call this... Whole operation, Job 314, which somehow, and Cruz is too smart for me, Cruz deduces is actually Job 314 and uses that passage in the Bible to extrapolate an email address that gets him communicating with Max. Huh?
2: I do love the 90s internet scenes and movies, yeah. He looks up and he sees a Bible, and that's where it clicks. Oh, Joe, there's no setup for that. He just happens to see that Bible.
1: And it wasn't Kitridge who came up with this. It's when Kitridge was eavesdropping on Max's conversations, or Max's emails, I guess. They see Job 314, and it's Ethan, because yes, he's the best, who sees a Bible and goes, because he's, I guess used web crawler or yahoo to (laughs) search for job 314 and then when he looks up job 314 he goes to the usenet use groups
2: yes usenet groups
1: (laughs) (laughs) and somehow from those is able to just email non-domains i don't no, it's, it's a bad understanding of technology But it's a straight
2: path of deduction
3: But at the right time Because no one else really back then knew it either I was just getting on AOL that year So what did I know?
2: Yeah, I feel like I'm watching the net all over again Yeah, <laughs> exactly
3: A flagrant disregard and misuse of what the internet actually was At a time when most of us didn't know what it was So they could get away with it But of course now it looks incredibly dated And perplexing that they get here It's a strange jump And I think that brian de palma makes it stranger he makes the choice be him discovering that bible that we see it through uh sometimes we get like actually through his eyes kind of shots he likes to use a lot of cam, and we see from his perspective it's kind of woozy i think he's drugged for a second or but he's just kind of tired and strategically that bible is right in his eyeline sight above his computer screen was that put there by phelps To be found in that way?
2: I don't know, because we're going to know it's from the Drake Hotel. That's going to give it away, but I don't know why he'd bring the Bible. There's a Bible everywhere. The Gideons are everywhere. You don't need to bring a Bible. You You don't have to steal it from a hotel.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, here's where it all goes false for me as far as the deduction is, yes, this Bible is in the library in the room where they were supposed to meet after the operation, and it may have been the room where they were before the operation. I mean, it seems to be their hotel or something. But for whatever reason, Phelps was obviously there, and instead of putting the Bible in a drawer, he put it on a bookcase. And then Ethan realizes from looking at a Bible, oh, it's Job 3.14. And from that later on, he's like, wait, where'd this Bible come from? The Drake. Well, I know one person who was at the Drake. He's the mole.
2: I think that's pretty good evidence.
3: But do you think he did it on purpose? I guess what I'm asking is, did Phelps set this Bible strategically because he knew that Ethan was going to live, would return to this room, would be on this computer, and would find this Bible and make that connection? I mean, that's an awfully big stretch. I never took it that way. I took this as Phelps' one fuck-up. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, and what's even weirder is we'll find out when Ethan finally meets Max. She's like, oh, I knew you weren't the real Joe because you used all these Bible verses and the the, the way you wrote. So, it's not like Phelps was even, like, quoting the Bible, so why did he have to take it with them? It's, yeah, it's bad writing. I'll I'll just say it right there. Bad writing.
3: Yeah, from good writers, but somebody had to fall on their sword and they wrote this and it's awful.
2: Or
1: it may have been in post-editing with a lot of the deleted scenes too it's it's so hard to tell where the problem lies there's so much blame to spread around we can't point at any one person also apparently the rumors from the set is de palma and Cruz were constantly fighting on this and did not get along
3: yes i heard that one too yeah i definitely heard that this was an acrimonious set And part of the reason that you don't see Brian De Palma's name on the second one is, sure, maybe Cruz wanted to bring in a different flavor or whatever, but I don't think Cruz ever wanted to work with Brian De Palma again.
1: According to what I've read, De Palma was offered to come back on to, who knows how serious an offer it was or if it was an insulting contractual obligatory offer. But De Palma declined to come back. Wow. Or maybe he just didn't want to work with Cruise again.
3: Yeah, exactly. The fact that he'd rather make Mission to Mars means a lot to me. (laughs) I mean, okay. He'd rather make a really terrible movie than a known hit. Okay. But yes,
1: the Bible thing is very confusing. But that they get to Max and it's Vanessa Redgrave, that's not so bad. I'm happy to see her here. It's someone kind of of Voight's caliber playing a counterpoint.
2: Yeah, I like Max here. I like this actress. Again, she's tough. I buy that. She's, what, an arms dealer or she's just, she sells secrets. She buys them and sells them to the highest bidder.
1: This was before Judy Dench was M, right?
2: Uh, no. That was the year before.
1: Okay, so it's just a time for taking old, respected actresses and making them tough people.
3: To me, this was a real jolt. You know, as you're trying to dig through this plot, Here we are in post-Cold War. It's a spy movie set in the post-Cold War. You got to think that Max is going to be A, a man and B, on the other side of the fence, right? On the other side of the just crumbled Berlin Wall. And no, the fact that it's a Margaret Thatcher type, that was a real nice surprise. Yeah, it was. It sets you off balance. This movie does it a lot. It took me a while to realize she wasn't going to have a turn and be a heroic character. I thought she was so grandmotherly that she ultimately would be a part of his new team. (laughs) And it was written for a
1: man. The script said Max was a guy, but they decided to cast Vanessa Redgrave. And I don't
3: argue with that choice.
2: No, great choice.
3: Yeah, no, she's fun to watch here. And yeah, I kind of miss that she's not going to be dangling from a wire and part of the team. But (laughs) she works. She works for what she's here to do. And that is to send us into Act 2 to to have Ethan rebuild a team to go get the real knock list. And I got to say, this is where Cruz could look really, really bad. He is willing to risk exposing every spy. On the chance that he is going to catch the man that he thinks killed his mentor, right? That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to avenge Phelps' death by finding who the real Job is.
2: Well, I think he's trying to avenge his whole team's death, not just Phelps.
1: And he's trying to prove himself not a criminal. He's trying to stay out of jail.
2: Kitridge is, is going to frame his mom and his uncle as, like, meth dealers to try to squeeze him out into the public. I mean, IMF is pretty nasty.
1: But, to Stewart's point, what these... NOC agents are are the ones who the government won't rescue. If they were captured by Russia as standard spy, what we do is arrange a trade. We'll trade them one of their standard spies for one of our standard spies. But these NOCs, if they're captured, we don't do anything for them. They are killed. So yes, he's putting a lot at risk and why he has to get the real knocklist is beyond me. Why he has to carry the disk with the real knocklist is also beyond me. Why he can't fake it, just like his boss had done in the first act of the film. Kitridge was smart enough to put a fake knock list out there that passed all the tests. So why Ethan and Luther, his hacker buddy now, can't put together a fake knock list, even if they have to steal the real thing so that... It can go out on the wires that the knock list was stolen. To take that anywhere except a safety deposit box, it's nonsensical.
3: Yeah, it's highly risky. And again, it makes me not like Ethan. It makes me think that he is a gambler who we're just supposed to know that because he never makes mistakes, it will end up all right. But that he would play with so many lives to prove his point is, it's selfish. I think it's horrible.
2: Well, I'm not getting caught up on that. To me, this is a spy film. I want spy stuff. I want the crazy action that we're going to get when he gets, puts this team together. Like, that's what I'm going into this movie looking for. I, I don't want a morally complex mission impossible. Ethan knowing a lot is fine. This ridiculous plot. I'm okay with this because, well, I want some spy fun. Even in theaters, I was
1: splitting the difference between your two points. I was recognizing that every decision Ethan making was re-goddamn-diculous, but I was thinking, well, the action is cool. I mean, when he goes to Langley, that scene with all of the safety involved in the safe and have they have to get there, they can't sweat a drop, they can't raise the temperature of the room, they can't touch the floor, I mean, this is a good setup and a really good wirework scene. It's a lot of fun, a lot of tension, and it became truly this film's icon. I remember the MTV Movie Awards that year had, I think, Ben Stiller on the wires, and this has been parodied and imitated so often. Here's your original.
3: No, actually, it's not the original. Brian De Palma lifted this. He is a fan of older movies, and you can see this scene in Rafifi, which is a pretty good jewel heist movie. It's a uh, Same thing where they had to be quiet and all. It wasn't so much wire work, but they, a lot of this scene is an homage to a 50s crime movie.
2: Yeah, but I love this whole set, just the set, the way the floor and the walls change colors when this agent goes in and out and. To me, this is fun. There's tension here to me because they've set up an impossible mission, <laughs> which is what I want a Mission Impossible, and I want to see what kind of creative ways they could come up with to solve the problem.
1: Can I just ask one question, though? If Tom Cruise is hanging in the room above the guy who has the pass key to get in the room, why not just knock that guy out and then you could just land on the floor because all the security systems are disabled, take the knock list and go back up? Why give this guy horrible diarrhea and vomiting and then have to do this under such circumstances with
3: all the systems armed
2: because it's more fun that way
3: yeah it is more fun that way and they do establish that Cruz is someone that doesn't want to hurt people he has a zero collateral damage policy if you have a choice between concussing me
1: or giving me horrible diarrhea and vomiting Please, hit me over the head.
2: Yeah, he does get shipped (laughs) off to Alaska because of this whole thing.
3: It is one of the centerpieces of this movie. It is probably the movie's best scene. I agree it's a lot of fun, but I did have the same thought you did, Arnie, which is that once they had him in their clutches... Why not take him away and just do it right there? That they continue it is just for the fun of the audience. It's so that we can watch. I mean, and yeah, then there's all this. Suddenly there's rats that are making Jean Renault lose his concentration and nearly drop Tom Cruise. I mean.
2: Well, because it's making noise. So he's got to like kill it and then grab the ropes again. Audiences are not going to be satisfied if they just abduct the guy and they don't do all the cool stuff where he catches the sweat before it hits the ground. and. Yeah,
3: no, it's worth the absurdity to enjoy the fun of this scene. This is the Palma really doing what he does at his best. And yeah, Cruz is fun to watch here. It, it looks like he's really doing the stuff when they drop him inches to the floor and all of that. It is really exciting, visceral stuff. But just because he gets that disk doesn't mean he needs to hand it to Max. But he does. That's the crazy thing. is He takes it away from his new teammate, Jean Reno, Krieger, and doesn't want to work with him again because, well, let's face it, Krieger screwed up like five times there. <laughs> he sneezed. He paid attention to a rat more than Tom Cruise. And He tried to kill someone. Yeah, he drops the knife. All of it.
2: And he ends up being in league with Phelps, which I don't know if there was a scene where This was all a master plan by Phelps to get the master knock list and to get $10 million and frame ETH. Like... As absurd as that is, the precognition you would have to have to pull that off is amazing.
3: No, I mean, it actually would make logical sense. If Phelps found out he didn't have the real knock list and was going to sell Max something that was phony baloney, and in fact, Max finds that out, they put that disc that he had in the computer and it brings the IMF on them, then, yeah, he's got to get the real list. So what we need to see... but we don't see is that he plants Jean Renault's character, Krieger, in the team. All of a sudden, Tom Cruise just has a new team. We don't really know why he got these people or by what means. But the reason we don't see that planting is because they're still trying to protect that surprise that Phelps is alive and the bad guy.
1: We do see him building the team. He's going through the computer files of disavowed IMF agents to pick from to find people like himself. And this is another Mission Impossible callback. The early scenes of the series always had Phelps or the first season, a different guy, going through the dossiers of all available agents and picking the ones they want or the guest stars for that episode. So here we see that And doesn't Claire drop a line like Krieger's good? I've worked with him before. If it had been more overt that Claire brings in Krieger and Mm. Ethan brings in Luther versus Ethan looking at the files and coming upon Krieger, that would have helped. I think she says it after he's picked them, but it is there.
2: Okay, I I missed that. There's so many easy little fixes. Even if we set up that Ethan, maybe he suspected Phelps at this point and he knew Krieger was an associate of Phelps, that there was some connection there, and he wanted to draw him out and do the fake disc thing. I mean, there's little things here. It's just weird that it never got fixed. I guess you said they were writing the script as they were filming, so these things just get passed by.
1: Yes, done under budget and ahead of schedule, but this is the results. This is what you get when you rush.
3: (laughs) So what's the deal with Ving Rhames' character? He's also on the outs but he is presumably a good bad agent.
1: Yeah,
2: he's the new hacker. He's the new Emilio.
1: Yeah, I get it that he was set up or something went wrong outside his control. He was not a killer, a criminal, a traitor, but he was for some reason disavowed. And he's the good one. I mean, he wouldn't go along with Ethan's plan if he knew what the plan was, it's revealed. Ethan keeps his teammates in the dark about what they're stealing. Because especially Luther would never have done it. And after they get the knock list, he gives it to Luther because luther's the one least likely even of ethan himself of letting that get out
3: oh that's interesting i kind of would have liked that moment of actually having luther against ethan for a moment once he realized that he had done something horrible because i thought it was awfully strange that everyone was cool with yeah exposing a list that could get everyone killed but they're not they don't know that it's just
1: a dialogue exchange right after cruz does his little magic disappearing disc trick. That Luther kind of admonishes him for what he's doing, but it's very gentle, which is why he gets to come back for sequels.
3: And then Brian De Palma gets really, really kind of into himself with this POV stuff. We now have the reintroduction of Phelps. He comes wandering in like he just got out of the lake. He walked all the way to London. We don't know how he got there. But he meets up with Ethan in London. And we have him explain his version of why Kittredge is the mole. But we experience it as a reprocessing inside the mind of Ethan. And that's what really happened. So even though Ethan is sitting there nodding his head and telling his mentor, You're right. Kittredge is the Job. In his head, what we're seeing, I mean, that's kind of confusing. It's contradictory.
2: I like that. I thought that was clever. It is. Because at this point, we know, I mean, if you haven't figured it out by this point, you got to know Phelps is the guilty one. He's showing up out of nowhere.
1: The moment he shows up, it's obvious.
2: Yeah.
3: Okay, yeah, I mean, I had thought that I knew that, but I just, you don't often see that in movies, and I think Brian De Palma is doing something, it's not a flashback, it's not a dream sequence. People may not understand what they're watching. They're watching internal thought processes of a character all of the sudden, and I think that can be weird, maybe for people that are struggling to understand this plot.
1: I got it the first time that it's his thought process, but it's also a flashback to what really happened that night. So it's replaying that early seen from just a different point of view and yeah so as soon as phelps returns we're told through this flashback that he is the guilty one the big question is now claire's role and that's why phelps goes through the ruse of meeting up with max and all of this is to just let everybody expose themselves versus his deductive reasoning he needs
2: proof I'd like that moment where Ethan, yeah, he sees Claire in his mind blowing up the car, and he's like, "No, no, it can't be, and then reimagines it as Phelps doing it you're You're not quite sure he's not quite sure, and so they've told us the mystery they' revealed the villain, but they'd still leave a little mystery for us to figure out
3: yeah i again, I think that could potentially be confusing. I got it, but I could knowing this movie's reputation, I could see where people got lost about what are they telling me. What is the real thing? But yes, we are to know at this point Phelps is in on it. Ethan knows that. And he's just got to figure out if Claire is good or bad. Does it matter? I got to say, if there had been a love triangle, if we felt like we wanted Ethan to be with Claire, we might be rooting for her to be innocent. But honestly, if if he's just going to call Kittredge and get the IMF people involved, it really doesn't matter at this point.
2: Yeah, the only reason I think he cares if Claire is innocent or not is because i have imagined that there is some love triangle because that is in the film like that may have been cut out but there is residual effects that you you
3: feel lingering exchanges eyes yes there's the one scene
1: where she like grasps his hand and caresses it lovingly after phelps has revealed himself so what's happening here is that claire is playing the role of the seductress she's sent in to seduce ethan And get the real knock list and keep track of Ethan's movements. But my take, and this is all open to interpretation. At this point, this plot is a Rorschach test. So if every (laughs) listener has a different interpretation, they're all equally valid. If they see this plot and see their mother's vagina, that's fine. (laughs) That's what it's for. But my seeing in this vision is that Phelps is not telling Claire that he's revealing himself to Ethan. Because he wonders, is Claire's seduction an act, or has she fallen for him? And is Claire going to betray Phelps the way she betrayed everybody else on her team, and try to split the 10 million with Ethan instead of him?
2: No, I I think you're right, Arnie. That's what I'm seeing is this love triangle that's not actually there, but it's supposed to be there. It's supposed to be in this film, but they cut it out.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, you have to explain some reason why when we get to this climax on a moving train... We have everything leading into the baggage claim, where Claire is going to confront her husband, who's actually Ethan in another latex mask, and basically out herself as being against the team from the beginning. And so now it gets really bizarre. Her real husband comes out with a gun and shoots her. Yeah, that
1: is always a what the f- moment. It really is what is going on at this point. To make this happen. And it's not in the movie. It has absolutely nothing. If that relationship had been there. If we had the opening scene establishing a love triangle. And could get that he felt cuckolded by her relationship with Ethan. It all makes sense. But all we have is a couple lingering glances. Him upset. Because when she comes in. She's trying to convince Phelps not to kill Ethan. And that's enough for him to suspect her, to betray him. And that line he drops about being in a unhappy marriage anyway. So yeah, he kills her.
2: Yeah, what's weird is he shoots her, but then just kind of cold cocks Ethan over the head with the gun, like just kind of beats him up. Why not shoot Ethan too? You got more than one bullet.
3: That's even more improbable that he could physically take Tom Cruise, John Voight, (laughs) is even more improbable than he would shoot that woman. But yeah. It is sort of a, okay, we're just going to go for it because we're going to get an exciting fight atop a train. He's going to try to escape off the roof with the money. He they, he has the bag of money. Max has made good on it because Max is uploading the real knock list.
2: Are these bear bonds from Die Hard? They look like weird bills. They were uncut. They are stocks or
3: something. Yeah, she promised Americans, so I don't know what this is. It's some kind of funny money.
1: Everybody's betraying everybody, okay?
3: <laughs> yeah, but anyway, he's slipping it in his jacket jacket he's crawling across the top of the roof avoiding the bridges all of this stuff is kind of fun
2: yeah and i like the added tension we have luther he's trying to block the modem signal as max is trying to upload the knock list kitridge is going through the train i mean there's a lot going on there's a lot of tension with this action on top of the train as well. It's a good
1: climax. I like this. I wish the CGI was better. The green screening is really bad.
2: It's dated. (laughs) That helicopter looks bad.
1: Yeah, and the miniature work of the helicopter is truly laughable, but seeing him fly down the train, it was reminding me of the best scene from The Wolverine done 20 years before, you know, the way he's using the momentum of the train to slide down and all that. And I even love it at the end when it finally, the helicopter crashes and the blade comes like just inches from Ethan's neck. And I also just love Jean Reno deciding my own life. I'm going to try to use my helicopter blades that keep me afloat as an offensive weapon.
3: (laughs) But he's always such a klutz that of course he like ends up ramming against the tunnel and and screws it up. I mean, yeah, that guy isn't very good. He's just a bad spy. (laughs)
2: No wonder he was disavowed.
3: Yeah, Phelps shouldn't have hired him either, quite frankly.
2: Yeah, but I feel like besides that scene at the CIA where they're dropping down on wires, that helicopter blade, like, right at his throat stopping, I-, I i felt like that was always an iconic scene from this movie as well. I mean, it's got a couple good scenes that have lasted.
1: I think it was even in the trailer, the really cool scene when the helicopter blows up and the sheer impact from the explosion propels Cruz back to the train i mean that's really cool stuff
3: yeah i, I it's, it's a double whammy because first you know john renault blows up but then it falls and it crushes on john voight so yeah it is a satisfying villain death you want that that's always important in a bond movie this is my comparative for these things is we want the villain to get a really gruesome death and they do here but the weird thing is is that tom cruise isn't going to wind up with anyone other than ving rames it's kind of a hollow victory if he doesn't get a babe, isn't it? It's a little weird.
2: Well, he wants to quit, too. He doesn't even want to be with the IMF. They're going to do that joke at the end, but he wants to go away.
3: Maybe he'll bag Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> <laughs> She's the best
1: actress in the movie, so sure. Yeah, the ending is a lot of convenience, that Kitridge is also on the train, that Ethan pulls out the glasses that Kitridge is tapped
3: into to show Phelps is alive. Well, Kittredge is on the train because Ethan gave him the ticket to be on the train. Right.
2: Yeah, Ethan called him so they could track the call, know he was in London, and figure out all that stuff. Yeah, and send him the tickets.
3: The problem is the movie wants to be so coy all the time. It, It wants to surprise you that it leaves out too much information, and you end up having to piece things together from not enough footage. I mean, we needed to see a moment of Kittredge and Ethan on the same page, I think, before this climax. It's not a good enough surprise that they're in it together. We know we mailed them the ticket. I don't know. I just wanted that to feel less random.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I don't even know if in 96 you could use your cell phone to do dial-up internet. I don't know where Max's tech guy was uploading the file to. Plus, I'm guessing it's a plain text file. If they even uploaded part of it, they'd at least have part of the list.
3: Yeah, but they're going to jail. No, they're not going
1: to jail. Kitridge says right there, we're not going to prosecute you. you. We can make some deals.
2: No, she's arrested. She is arrested. And she says, my lawyer is going to have a field day with this.
3: No, this is black op stuff. This is like Abu Ghraib. They're like, yeah, you're not going to get a trial. He says, we're going to leave the court's. Out of this. I take that to mean that they're going to be getting a bag over the head and whisked off to someplace <laughs> never to be seen again. Not that they're going to cut a deal. She's smiling. I thought they were cutting a deal.
2: No, I just took it. That's her toughness. That's her character. Even when she, the IMF is there, she's still going to be confident and strong. Oh,
1: that's not how I read it, but I guess...
2: <laughs> did you see your mother's vagina?
3: <laughs> Maybe one of our listeners did. Yeah, no, there was a time where we were once proud to have black ops people disappear evil people i mean that was at one point not so long ago not a controversial position to take
1: ironically the original series went the same way in the 60s it was all about them doing cold war missions and you know basically working for the government to overthrow south american dictators and eastern european spies and then vietnam happened and all of a sudden they're doing domestic missions against mobsters so, Jacob, Stuart, red light or green light, which half of the stick of gum do you give this? Jacob?
2: Stuart, you called out James Bond. That's how I see this. If you like James Bond films, they come out every three or four years. You need something to entertain yourself in between those films. And this is going to hold up to, you know, that middle tier of Bond films, I think. it's Does it have story problems and plot issues? Yeah, just like a lot of summer blockbusters. But it's a fun film. I get what I want out of a spy film here. I get the gadgets, the gum that explodes, the cool wires hanging down, the fun train scene at the end, the tension. That's what I want in a spy film, and it satisfies that. It's, you know, it's not a great, amazing movie, but yeah, it's a recommend.
3: Stuart. Well, you know, you bring up James Bond, of course, that's my point of reference, and the problem is I can't connect it to just another James Bond. This feels like a different series. I'm trying to figure it out. You know, James Bond, they're sexy. There's something about them that that has a lightness, a campiness to them, particularly in the eras before... Pierce Brosnan and GoldenEye, but you really felt that it was all sort of a lark, a male bachelor fantasy. And then on the other side, the other thing that was kind of going on at the same time that this is referencing is Die Hard, where it's all about macho action thrills and you really get some really great action sequences. This one is kind of neither fish nor fowl. I mean, it it's kind of in between. I, I'm confused by it. I'll be honest. I feel a little weird about a team movie that kills off the entire team in the beginning and turns it into Tom Cruise can do no wrong. I feel like he is an ill fit for this franchise, and I'm hoping I'll feel differently. But he's a problem for me in this movie. But I did enjoy the rest of the movie. I did feel like you pointed out, Jacob. There were fun thrills. There were some good surprises. There was also a lot of confusion, but mostly good surprises. A colorful cast. I think it's a mild recommend. I predict that this series will get better, but it. I think it is struggling to be a Tom Cruise is a hero movie and a spy team movie at the same time.
1: And for me... Yeah, this movie has a lot of problems. And walking out of the theater in 96, watching it for this review, watching it every time in between, which has only been a handful. I mean, I don't revisit this even annually. But every time I watch it, I'm like, wow, that plot is just... It just is missing so much. It's not even a ridiculous plot. It just has no connective tissue between these action scenes. I mean, finding out that they had action scenes... And then got some great screenwriters and limited them to say, write a script that we like that connects all this while we're filming. Yeah, it shows. I mean, this is an awful story and script and the characters' actions make no goddamn sense. But I like Tom Cruise in this. I like his cockiness. I like him as a super spy. I like him embracing and really going full force with his Tom Cruise karate chop run. I mean... Running from the water with his hands pumping up and down because that makes you run faster.
2: That is his signature run. You you watch any Tom Cruise film where he's running, he's got those hands straight out. It it is a signature move of his.
1: <laughs> it's so often mocked, but yeah, so fun. And the stunts here are really great. They were great for the time. I remember being really impressed with the wire work and the hack scene, and liking. The helicopter scene, it doesn't hold up as well today. On Blu-ray, it looks really kind of fakey with all the matting and whatnot.
2: On Netflix over the internet, it, it doesn't hold up either, so.
1: Yeah, and you can never tell. Maybe it looked better when projected on film versus digital transfers. That does happen to some effects, but it looked a lot worse to me 20 years later than it did in theaters. But it's still a fun ride. I still like the energy the actors bring to their characters. I like the conviction they have in their own actions, even if there's no motivation behind them. Or they're making bad decisions. (laughs) I agree with Stuart. It's a mild recommend. It's not a strong recommend. But my memory is, and I have revisited the films as we go deeper into the series less. My memory is this is a rarefied series that each installment bests the one before. So if this is the worst of the series and it's a mild recommend and gets three arrows, I think we're on a great path here, folks.
2: Well, I'll just say I've seen one of the next two. I don't know which one, (laughs) if it was two or three. I didn't feel compelled to return, so we'll we'll see, I guess. I I didn't know I had that reputation that they all got better. Well, I mean,
3: if you look at James Bond, Dr. No, some people call it a classic, but if you go back to the tape, we were all pretty unimpressed with it. I think that, yeah, sometimes it takes a while for a franchise to find its footing. This feels like it's a newborn. It's on wobbly legs. I do believe it's going to get stronger. It's going to get more confident in what it is. Whether I'll like what it becomes, yet to be seen. But I I do think we're going to get a more confident movie next time.
1: And we'll be back next week with that. In the meantime, coming out this Friday is our review of Goonies. It is part of our Silver Level Donation Series, the last new podcast in this series. It's in the Silver Level that also includes the four Indiana Jones films. Because Goonies is kind of a cousin. It's
2: got short round. I think it is as related
1: to Indiana Jones. It's more related to Indiana Jones <laughs> than Deep Blue Sea was to
3: Jaws.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to say more related than Crystal Skull is to the first <laughs> Tree. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I was prepared for that one again. And also, if you saw
1: Jurassic World in theaters like so many people did, then you can hear our review of that with a gold level donation. You get all the Indiana Jones reviews, Goonies, and four Jurassic Park reviews, plus a couple other Michael Crichton reviews, Westworld and Future World for a gold donation, and if you go platinum, we've pulled from the vault our Poltergeist series and added that new review. But these are only available until the end of July, so you can get them today at nowplayingpodcast.com. Click the banner at the top for all the details. And we'll be back next week with Mission Impossible 2. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. And until next week, mission accomplished.
0: The president has invoked ghost protocol. We're shut down. No satellite safe house, support, or extraction. Thank you for listening to Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode in the Mission Impossible retrospective series. Seems we have a lot to talk about, don't we? Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another Mission Impossible review culminating in a week of release review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation.
2: Have you been away so long you've forgotten how good we are?
0: Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Rambo, the Ocean's Eleven films, the Batman movies, and more. I am gagging for it. NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Where else am I going to go? You can also follow NowPlaying on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Oh, that was nothing. That was fun. That's fun. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you in or not? Of course we're in. Now Playing is edited by Heath. Anthony, Stephen, and Arnie.
2: Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr.
0: Hunt, it's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Is he serious? Always. (laughs) The movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. My lawyers are going to have a field day with this entrapment. Jurisdictional conflict. Well, maybe we'll just... just leave the courts out of this one. The opinions expressed in now playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I don't
3: have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession.
0: It's like a wound blanket now playing as a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We were unprepared, in the dark, disavowed. And the only thing that functioned properly on that mission was this team. I don't know how we ended up together. I'm glad we did.
1: Ving Rhames, directed by Brian De Palma. This is the
3: podcasting flavor of the month, Arnie. I'm so disappointed you didn't read the actresses playing Hannah Williams' name. I really wanted to hear you do that.
1: Uh, Vanessa Redgrave, Kristen Scott Thomas, oh, Hannah?
3: Yes.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Or is this Stewart in L.A.? No, rip off my face. It's Jacob. Hey, you That's need to true. do the voice, too. The voice? This is Jacob. Oh. <laughs> I can do something with that. You'll do some editing magic.
1: <laughs> Indeed, this film was nominated for a Razzie for worst film grossing over a hundred million dollars.
3: <laughs> Interesting.
2: Didn't win though. Yeah. What did? Shit. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that, that was a category.
1: <laughs> I love the Razzies because they always mix up what the categories are
3: that year. But yeah, they make it up. Yeah.
2: Make it up as they go. The winner was
3: Twister. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that deserved to win some Razzie. I know that. <laughs>
1: worst original song was Pussy, 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 Whose Kitty Cat Are You from Striptease?
3: <laughs> okay. <laughs> who sang that? Demi? Um, Please tell me, Demi Moore. I'll go buy it right now if Demi Moore sang it. Marvin Montgomery? Well, that doesn't I don't know I who that is. No. Hey, he's an award winner. He's got a
1: statue <laughs> and you don't. Hey, I was shocked to find out Hayek. Was an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. I had to look that shit up. I'm like, everything we've reviewed of his has been pretty awful. What, right, American Graffiti? It was American Graffiti. Yeah. 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 Are the ones who the government won't rescue. A standard spy if they're captured by, who do we hate? Uh,
2: ISIS? Are we talking today or in 96?
1: <laughs> uh, something today less inflammatory than ISIS. <laughs> But we do see him pick the team, and that's another... Hold on, dogs. Sorry, editor. Even if it's me. (laughs) Probably me. Sorry, myself. Mission Impossible Callback. The early scenes of the series always had Phelps or first season, a different guy. Phelps or the first season, a different guy. Going Phelps or the first season, a different guy. Phelps or the first season a different guy going through the dossiers of all available agents and picking the ones they want or the picking the ones they want or the guest stars for that episode so we do see that guest stars for that episode so we do see that guest stars for that episode hold on
3: speaking Lord. of guest stars <laughs> how about that chihuahua <laughs> he's making this podcast a mission impossible <laughs> just say it five more times
2: I thought we had a DJ like scratching a record there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Guest star, guest
1: star, guest star for that episode. Guest guest, guest star for that episode. (laughs) It's like a remix.